Hey, Peter. What's up, man? Is range important? It's it's important. It's also important not to use helium before in a <laughs> podcast episode. Is that even legal? I'm Adam Manis. And I'm Peter Martin. And you're listening to the You'll Hear It podcast. Daily jazz advice coming at you. Coming at you with a little Easter egg there for uh, Open Studio Insiders. That's right. Yeah. Uh, are Easter eggs normally announced? Aren't they? <laughs> okay. They, 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 they'll know who they are. Okay. Got it. They never would listen to this. <laughs> All right. Well, what do we have today? Today we have a question from an email. This is a question from Catherine in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, I love Melbourne. Say Melbourne again. Melbourne? I love it. Yeah, you know, there's, I might be going to Australia soon, so I'm excited to get yeah. over there. Melbourne, yeah. coffee, the never food, been. Never the been. culture, the people. I can't it's wait. all I can't there. Wait. I can't wait. Okay, yep. uh, this is a question from Catherine. Catherine asks, when playing a piece, say a standard in the original key that I know well, but in a trio format, I often find the head now seems too high or low in range. I also don't feel as well acquainted with it anymore as I feel like I'm less anchored, leaving out... Um, the bass notes. Also, left-hand rootless voicings can seem to get away, get in the way of the right-hand melody, or alternatively, if I play up an octave or in octaves, the whole thing starts to feel too high. Apart from changing the key, what are the various techniques you would use in a trio, including playing the root notes of chords, which some bassists and jazz educators seem to disapprove of? Yeah. Um, Supposedly bassists that are trying to play them themselves, right? Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. Well, Catherine, thank you for the question. It's a great question, actually. And, yeah. and it's probably something that I don't think pianists talk um, as much as they should about because yeah. it's really important. Yeah. And so one thing in that third paragraph, apart from changing the key, I would say the first <laughs> thing I do is right. put it in a key that's comfortable exactly. that I think sounds good. But she's asking apart from that. So well, we're going to have to dive into that, but I think that is the you got to be able to do that. Yeah, Catherine, the most important thing you can do is find a good key. Singers do it, we yeah, should do it too. Exactly. And yeah. we should be able to do it. We have to develop that technique. I'm not saying that you have to be able to learn to do it today, but you you know, if you want to be a serious jazz pianist, especially if you want to work with singers, if you want to be able to play tunes in ranges that are interesting and and effective, you know, of, of new tunes and whatever um i mean look a lot of these jazz standards so-called jazz standards are songs yeah it's not all of them yeah and, and if they were written for a tenor voice you might have to move it up a little right i mean the good part about it you're probably not going to have to like um uh transpose any of herbie hancock's jazz standards or thelonious monks because they were pianists and right. they lay really well there exactly um but but with standards yeah we've done that a lot and then some tunes even become where people are thinking, oh, the original key is such and such because like Keith Jarrett played it there, and right. it turns out they're not because he did a lot of moving around. I mean, there's such a, a precedent for this for all pianists have done this. Yeah, because you know some of these uh, Bill Evans, um, Bill Evans did it. Bill Evans Monk on like the solo Monk and the totally. you know, standards. Because records. for some of the Great American Songbook standards, just the keys were written for singers, and if there's not a singer in the band, you know sometimes. You're right, Catherine. Like the voicings just don't work out if, if the melody gets too low. You know, move it up a, a minor third or a fourth or something, yeah. and it'll lay just perfectly there in the piano. Uh, then the other part that I want to address, like right away, is the rootless voicings. So, uh, um, you know, they don't have to be rootless. Your voicings, no, not at all. Yeah. And I think that even when with a trio, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important for pianists. Uh, especially that want to play in a trio situation, which is pretty much any jazz pianist, I would think, yeah. um, that you get very familiar with rooted voicings 
Well, first of all, there's two different kinds. There's at least, but there's two basic different types of rooted voicings, I would say, you know, with the root on the bottom and the root somewhere in the voicing. Yeah. You can always use a root somewhere in the voicings. Rootless voicings does not mean, well, it does mean no root, but you know, what we're going to be talking about, I think, here in terms of potential clash with bassists and jazz educators <laughs> is when the root is on the bottom. But mm. there's a very big difference between the tenor range and the bass range yeah. on the piano. Yeah. And so I want everybody, all pianists, getting familiar with both those ranges. Now, is, is there an exact place where it, it, it moves? No. But there's a general area, and um, I couldn't really tell you. You're by the crank. You're by the bass. What would you say is between the... Like I, that's exactly what I was going to yeah. go to that C. That's I mean, what I was so, thinking. Yeah, the C below middle C. That's definitely still for me in an exceptional range. In fact, that's tenor, right? That's tenor. Of, I mean, from a piano standpoint, I'm fine going down to the G, the yeah. F. Even it depends on the basis, and it depends on the, on the piano too. It depends on the voicing. It depends yeah. on a lot of things, but. You know, uh, do you ever read Ethan Iverson's blog, Do the Math? Yeah, of course. So he had this great post about um, basically jazz education, and, and he had one section about how uh, there's this myth about taking the root away, right? Yep. And he does this. He's like, pianists in jazz history who use root, rooted voicings, and it's like every Thelonious Monk, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Horace a Silver. snarky list of every great jazz pianist. Right. And then people who don't use the root. And it was Bill Evans <laughs> and students in jazz school. <laughs> and that was, it was so great. I mean, Bill Evans, you know, didn't use a lot. I mean, to be fair, a lot of people in that Miles Davis, like he goes on to explain, like the Miles Davis bands. Yeah, Red you know, Garland, Herbie even, yeah. you know, they didn't use a lot of roots because that was their thing. Yeah. Ron Carter, famously, yeah. right, doesn't like roots right uh but don't play don't play below the k in the Kranich and Bach. literally every other pianist uses a ton of rooted voicings in the rhythm section you know you have to know how to do it it creates a sonority that is so strong yeah and great i mean i've been super getting into this since actually becoming friends with you and listening to how you do it you do it so perfectly and i think range has a big part of that yeah so i think that in order to get into hearing this is when you're practicing alone of course as a pianist is play in that tenor, like start to identify the tenor range and the bass range. Right. And like I say, it's not exact science, but you could take that C as kind of, or B flat maybe as a nice little So Catherine, of, let's say you're doing a standard. Fine, that voicing is great. It yeah. sounds good. But it also sounds good and even, I think, a little better. Yeah. And the bass player can be there and you could be there and now you have this fuller sound with that root on the bottom. Yeah. Yep. Fine. Yep. That's fine. Absolutely. And I mean, and really, if you think about that, where, where you, and that was with a C on the bottom, the same one we're talking about is that kind of cutoff. Uh, you're still a fourth, a perfect fourth above the top string, mm -hmm. open string on a bass. Yep. And so like, I mean, I used to do this until I just sort of got a, a, a sort of intuitive feel for it. I would, I would listen or even look at the bass player when I was trying to like find See where they are. Of course, we're going by ears, but yeah. also by like, like we know that they're below that particular like always think about it in relation to your instrument until you can do it intuitively yeah um so start to think about that because the, the bass range is always lower than we think because we're used to seeing it written on the page and remember the bass is a transposing instrument right an octave down or an octave up so like once you realize that and, and look you can we, if you were to go down and play that same voicing in the right hand but then put the left hand an octave lower or even like root seven or something. Yeah. And, and maybe even give the seventh on the bottom too with the left hand. Yeah. Okay. That's the Kranich and Bach makes everything sound muddy. But you want to be able to get that sound what is versus. This for? What is the same audio thing here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're so old school. <laughs> no, no, no. We're like. You know. 
But I mean, the thing about it is, is hearing because you can even get away with some of that lower stuff on a better piano, with especially root seven, root five, or whatever. Absolutely. But you've got to know the sound. This guy has a wolf of a bass. Yeah, so yeah. This piano, yeah, yeah. But once you know your sound and what what that is, is and then you can start to even mess around with like once the bass player you see him going up on the G, him or her going up on the G string. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, this is my time to kind of jump down and not walk a bass line under him, but Take to jump down, down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for those kind of things, if they're up here, like. Yeah. They sometimes are prone to do exactly. Um And how does this pertain to your question? Well, if you're down here with stuff, all of a sudden, this sort of range in here for yeah. melodies yeah. is in play, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. From That's that a G below middle yeah. C, now we can voice melodies that low. Yep, absolutely. Which with, if you're doing rooted or rootless voicings, that's not good. No, exactly. But exactly. we can get rooted voicings and have some kind of feeling of solid ground. Yeah. And then, so, so getting back to your question, too, we can think about now you're talking tenor range. Basically, the reason you can't get the rooted voicings is because we're in that tenor range for the melody, which I think is a great place to be, especially if the bass player knows to kind of not conflict there. It can be, yeah. But what we have to do as pianists in a trio standpoint is be comfortable not playing a lot of um, voicings. Now, it depends on what tune it is. If you have a melody that's like, say, like, bank, gang. And so you wait all the way, because that's kind of in the tenor range in the original key. Yeah. So you're not doing any comping until you get a break in the melody. And then you're comping in the same range. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if I can do this at the Kranich and Bach. Let you me try it. You got it. You got it. You're kind of comping right on top of yourself. You got to wait, and then you got to. I didn't do it very effectively, but you got to comp in a way that's sublimated underneath the melody. Like that's a way to. Like obviously, that melody starts to go up higher after that. So then you're cool. Yeah. But you got to be comfortable not playing comping all the time. I and mean, we don't have to single line stuff. Herbie yeah. Hancock did it great in the '60s. Still does it sometimes, and it's like. You know, that's a way to play. If you're not going to move, if you're not going to change the key, yeah. to play down that tenor range, you can't comp at the same time. Now, here's the top level of this, Catherine. The, the, the highest level I think of this is, why does your comping have to be below the melody? Hello. You, you know, why does your voicing have to be all below it? Why does your melody have to be in the right hand? What? Exactly right. You know, uh, our, <laughs> our buddy and uh, fellow open studio artist Jeffrey Keezer oh, man. has a really cool exercise that I'm going to blow your mind with right now where he does all the things you are. And let's say we're only comping. We're playing the melody with our right hand and yep. we're comping for ourselves yep. with the right hand. Okay. So let's start off below the melody. Yep. All right. Now I can do it above the melody. That's right. Now check it out. I can do below, above, and I can also do surrounding the melody. You can mix all these up. Now you add the left hand in, filling in parts of the chord that maybe you can't get all with your right hand, but that kind of practice of putting your comping or your voicings surrounding the melody or above it, yeah, that's crucial. That's great. Yeah. And you can even go next level, which is you take your sock off, and then we go with our foot <laughs> for the melody, hands for the comping. No, but there, so the comping doesn't, you don't have to think about it as like, and also when you're 
I don't know how you comp for other people. Don't have to think about it for com- when you're comping for a singer, say, no. as everything below them. No, absolutely You can not. be around it. Yeah, you can yeah. be above it. You know? But you're right. That is next level stuff. So you, you really want to know, obviously, the tune, the key, the timbre of your instrument. Yep. And what it's going to, that like when you get into the area of knowing what your comping sounds like before you play. I remember when I used to like play chords and I'd like comping chords. Like I always had a problem with two-handed voicings, comping behind people. I'd play something. I was like, ugh, I don't like the way that sounds. And then... Okay, I kind of like that. But it was just, it was a lack of, it wasn't even a lack of confidence. It was just a lack of knowing what something was going to sound like before you played it. Yeah. And that's something that practicing really starts to help because you've tried these things. It's not about planning them out, but you're trying your options so that right as you're playing, you're still spontaneous in the moment. You kind of know what it's going to sound like. I think it's huge. Yeah. Um, One other thing I thought about, you know, in terms of things to do besides getting out of the key um, is playing with octaves. Uh, sometimes if we think things are a little bit too high, especially, I just go to octave with the melody, especially mm. like with ballads or something. If I yeah. don't want to change the key, or a lot of times this will happen if you're playing with a vocalist and you have to change the key and it gets to an area that's not great for piano and maybe you have to play the melody there or whatever. There's some kind of thing. Like if, if it's sounding too shrill or just too trebly, play everything in octaves. Now, depending on the tempo, that might not be possible or whatever, but that gives you a little bit more sonority and brings you down you know, kind of into that range that can work a little bit better. I think that's great. And, and like, also, like all the things you are, I do that a lot. That's part of the reason because, I mean, depending, if you can play it lower, if you want to play it higher, it's nice with the octaves. Yeah. It's just a great technique to have. You know, and, and check out some Ahmad Jamal. Ahmad Jamal was famously playing things in octaves that weren't typical. You know, yeah. not not necessarily in different keys, but would go way up high and play a melody yeah. and, and down and low. And then you can block, two-handed block chord. Is that legal to say that? It is. Two-hand, yeah, two-handed block chords too. You can, you can do it. That's a way to get away with a standard if you can do it in almost any key, basically. But Catherine, level one on this is to find the key that works for the the tune you're doing, right? And understand that there's a precedent. Well, that's the, level two. Level one is learn the tune. That's true, right? Uh, but there's a precedent in jazz of of instrumentalists changing the key that suits their instrument. And Nothing just wrong with that. Know that you're going to be developing your ears as you do that. Totally so. cool. All right. Well, and, and you mentioned the Ethan Iverson blog, uh, do the math, which a uh, big shout out to Ethan and uh, friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we, we could say that. Um, just so you know, make sure <laughs> when you Google it, Google do the math yeah. or Ethan Iverson or jazz. Don't do like I do and get confused because I ended up on do the math, which is a different blog. And that kind of took me on a journey that I didn't want to go on to tell you. The you know, I'm from <laughs> Jefferson County, Missouri, so I know the founders of do the math. Exactly. Yeah. They, the server farm farm is right next to the meth farm where that where that blog is crystal city yeah that's right uh yeah until next time you'll hear it